Isaiah 9 verse 6 calls Jesus our wonderful counselor. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is also called the counselor. And though the Bible is filled with theology, history, and poetry, it's also filled with very practical counsel. Hey, are we overlooking biblical counsel for our lives? What if we could read our Bibles with more of an eye toward this counseling aspect? We'll talk about it coming up. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book, the one-hour visit to the Holy Land with Israel expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and many people ask, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? That's a good question. And that question recognizes, of course, the need for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, let's swing our focus toward a look at current events from the Middle East region. Earlier this week, Israel's high court issued its ruling on the reasonableness clause that had been passed as a basic law amendment. Charlie, I was shocked to read what I did, and i kind of confused. It seems like a country that's out of control. What's your take, and why is this all so significant? Well, the amazing part is the court struck down the reasonableness clause that the Knesset had passed as this basic law amendment. Now, three things make it significant. First, it's the first time in Israel's history that the high court has ever struck down a basic law, which functions as Israel's constitution. It would be roughly similar to our Supreme Court ruling that an amendment to our constitution is unconstitutional. Uh, But second, the vote was quite divided. Uh, The entire 15 members of the Supreme Court heard the case, and the final ruling was on an 8-7 to vote. And third, while the closeness of the vote is significant, 13 of the 15 justices also did rule that the court does have the authority to review basic laws. Now, there are a number of other issues, and we'll be exploring them in a little more detail next week. One impact that isn't yet known is the extent to which this could harm the unity that Israel has been experiencing since October 7. Well, the war between Israel and Hamas is now beginning its fourth month with no clear end in sight. And Israel is continuing to feel pressure from both surrounding nations and from the U.S. and other countries in the West. What might we expect to see happen in the next few weeks? Well, they've continued pressing their attacks on Hamas, though they did cut back on the total number of troops deployed in northern Gaza. They also killed a Hamas deputy commander who was based in Lebanon. Going forward, watch for greater pressure to be placed on Israel by the U.S. and other Western countries that would like Israel to agree to a ceasefire with Hamas. The U.S. has continued to supply arms to Israel, though it did deny an Israeli request to purchase additional Apache helicopters. Uh, With the 2024 presidential election on the horizon, President Biden doesn't want the U.S. to become entangled in the conflict. Uh, That's also why we've pulled back an aircraft carrier that we had there in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, The fear is that the longer the war drags on, the more likely it is that we would be drawn into the fight against Hezbollah, the Houthis, or even Iran. Uh, The war has also impacted Palestinian perception of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, 
but not in the way we might assume. In a recent poll, 72% said they supported Hamas's attack on Israel. 60% felt the Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, ought to be dissolved. And almost 90% said Abbas needs to resign. Within Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu is working feverishly to keep his government on target and on track in its war effort. So far, the majority of Israelis remain united in that goal, though this week's high court decision does create even additional complications. The government's dual role of defeating Hamas while rescuing Israelis held captive is making progress more difficult. And as Israel continues to go after Hamas, both in Gaza and in the assassination of the Hamas leader near Beirut, the pressure from Hezbollah in the north is going to increase, as well as the pressure on shipping in the Red Sea from the Houthis. Israel's goal is still to capture or kill the top Hamas leaders. But as I said before, watch for the West to increasingly pressure Israel to settle for something less, like securing the release of all hostages in return for a ceasefire and for allowing Hamas's leadership to leave Gaza. Uh, This is not Israel's preferred outcome. It's not even what they're saying that they would accept or or, uh, shoot for, but it could be the price they'll be pressured into accepting by the West in return for the West's continued support. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, helping us understand things happening in the Middle East. January 7th is Orthodox Christmas, and amid all the war and turmoil in the Middle East, the Christians in Israel got a bit of good news this Christmas season. What's the latest on the Christian population within Israel? Yeah, this is a good story on this Orthodox Christmas weekend. Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics released a report on the Christian community within Israel, and it shows that the Christian population in the country grew by 1.3% for the year. Now, that overall number is still relatively small. The Christians in Israel, and that includes Orthodox and Catholic and Evangelical, make up less than 2% of Israel's total population. Three-quarters of them are Arab Christians, and they make up about 7% of the total Arab population of Israel. Many Muslim countries in the Middle East are experiencing a rapid decline in the number of Christians, so the increase in Israel's Christian population is a pleasant exception. Nearly three-quarters of the Arab Christians in Israel live in the north, with Nazareth and Haifa being the two largest demographic areas. Jerusalem then comes in third on the list. Other things found in this report, uh, education is a major priority for Arab Christians in Israel. 84% completed high school and 55% continued on toward a degree in higher education. Uh, Finally, over 70% of Israel's Christians participate in the labor force. Uh, That's above Israel's overall rate of participation, which is 60 to 65%. So the Christian population in Israel is growing. They're going to school, they're working in higher numbers percentage-wise than the overall population, and frankly, that is encouraging. Well, one Christian group not rejoicing right now in Israel are the Armenians, who are locked in a land dispute in Jerusalem's Armenian quarter. What's the latest on the move to build a luxury hotel at that location? Yeah, the Armenians are the unhappy Christians right now, and this story has all the intrigue of a spy novel. A priest representing the Armenian church signed an agreement to lease the largest plot of open land in the old city, nearly a quarter of the entire Armenian area, to an Australian developer to build a luxury hotel. That priest has since been defrocked and is charged with having acted illegally in signing the lease. He claims he was acting under the authority of the patriarch, who he says was fully informed. 
The Australian developer is Jewish, and there are claims that this is part of a plot to enable Jews to take over more of the old city. Over the summer, there were charges that Israeli right-wing extremists were using threats and intimidation against the Armenians who were protesting the construction. The Armenians set up a temporary shelter on the property to try and halt any further activity. And recently, the architectural firm designing the hotel has suspended work on the project in light of the controversy surrounding the land lease. The Armenian community submitted a lawsuit in Jerusalem District Court asking to have the lease canceled. A few days later, 30 armed individuals attacked a group of Armenian bishops, priests, deacons, and other citizens, resulting in several serious injuries. But to add to the confusion, John, the armed attackers were apparently Arab Muslims, not Jewish extremists, with some suggesting the attack could be related to the recent war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. (laughs) The only thing that seems certain is this is going to end up playing out in court. But in the meantime, this piece of land known as the Cow's Garden is going to remain one of Jerusalem's most hotly contested pieces of real estate. Well, archaeology has taken a backseat to other events in Israel for obvious reasons, but that hasn't stopped archaeologists from reporting on their latest discoveries and theories. So what are some of the most recent archaeological controversies appearing in print? Well, one controversy remains the location of Bethsaida. Those excavating at El Arage suggest that they may have found a wall from the house of Simon Peter. Now, the reasoning gets a bit convoluted. They did discover a Byzantine-era church at the site, which they believe was dedicated to Peter. Beneath the apse of the church, they found the remains of a wall from the 2nd or 3rd century. And they believe the builders of the church must have venerated that wall to preserve it under the church. And then perpendicular to that wall, at a lower level, they found another wall from the 1st century. So, Is this wall the final one, the third one from Peter's house? Well, that's going to be the subject of a lot of debate going forward. A second controversy centers around the new theory suggesting the Milo, mentioned several times in the Old Testament, was actually a reference to the protective wall surrounding the Gihon Spring, not the step stone structure or terracing near the northern end of the original city of David. And the problem with that is that the fortifications by the Gihon Spring were originally built by the Canaanites, not by the kings of Israel. But watch for that debate as well to continue over the coming years. Well, it's a full program today with a conversation about the Life Council Bible, a call to you and I to make sure that what we do and how we do it is totally biblically aligned. Plus, Charlie's answers to your Bible questions, that's coming up in another segment. A devotional you won't want to miss, all part of The Land and the Book for today. Our website, as always, is thelandandthebook.org. For information on all of our guests, past programs, and more, thelandandthebook.org. Isaiah 9.6 calls Jesus our wonderful counselor. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the counselor. And though the Bible is filled with theology, history, and poetry, it's also filled with practical counsel. Hey, what if we could read our Bibles with more of an eye toward this counseling aspect? Is it possible we're overlooking biblical counsel for our lives? What do you say we talk about it next? Welcome again to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to pause for just a moment along with me and think about creative ways that we can communicate the love of Jesus to our friends and neighbors in the Jewish community. Is God the creator and sustainer of the world, or is the care of the world pretty much on us? 
I'm wondering here if that's a question you could ask your Jewish friend. Uh, Roy Schwartz, what do you think? Well, most Jewish people think of themselves as being called to restore the world. We have a messianic complex, and that's awfully tiring. And so the idea that God actually is the sustainer and creator of the world is a relief in many ways. I mean, the idea of talking about sovereignty of God is just something we don't even think about. We think that the world, to be saved, it's up to us as Jews. And if you look at the history of the Jewish people, if you look at the history of the church, we can't do this. We mess up. We need to trust God as the creator and the sustainer. Most of us, Jews and Christians, don't really trust and believe that God is sovereign over everything. And that's something that, uh, you know, I'm learning as I grow in this faith. And I think that's something that would be a great relief to you to know that you don't have to carry, and Israel doesn't have to carry, the salvation of the world. Hope you're enjoying these conversation starters. That's Roy Schwartz with Chosen People Ministries. Dr. Edward Welch is a counselor and faculty member at the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Ed has been counseling for over 30 years and has written many books and articles on biblical counseling, including... When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, and many more. He and his wife, Sherry, have two married daughters, eight grandchildren. In his spare time, Ed enjoys spending time with his wife and extended family and playing his guitar. Hey, thanks for being part of the land of the book today, Dr. Welch. Oh, John, so good to be with you. Thanks. Hey, in addition to being a great writer and effective counselor, you have spent time traveling in Israel. So I have to ask right off, what's a favorite memory for you as you visited the Holy Land? Uh, I would say my memories are especially Galilee-like. That's what I see most clearly. And one in particular, the Sea of Galilee was dead calm, absolutely dead calm. There was barely a ripple. And the group that I was with, we pushed out in a large boat and no motors, just sort of drifted out. We had... We had a rope connected to the land. So we probably went out 25 yards and we prayed together. We read some scripture together and to look around the boundaries of the Sea of Galilee and to be in that dead calm. Yeah, that was precious. That's probably my most vivid yeah. memory of traveling. Well, beyond memories, how, how has being in Israel shaped the way that you read the Bible now? Let me uh, give an analogy. My wife is not from where I grew up. Uh, she grew up in suburban Boston, uh, and I wasn't familiar with suburban Boston. So I, I suspect around three years after we got married, we drove up to that area, and we were, we were going to do some other things, but we stopped at her old haunts. We went to the place where her house used to be. It's not there anymore. We went to the church where her father was the pastor, we actually walked from the place where her house was to her elementary school, just so I could get a sense of it. And, and I would say there are two things that came out of it. One was, I just loved it. I, I, I just loved doing that with my wife. The other was, I knew her better as a result of knowing where she was from and where she grew up and her sort of pointing out the various landmarks. So I think the first way Israel has shaped the Bible is, it's hard to quantify, but I, I know Jesus a little bit better because I know where he's from. You know, yeah. I've, I've walked around in that area. Right. Uh, so 
So in the same way, I can't really quantify how do I know my wife better and how do I love her just a little bit more because of it. So I would say that, that even though that's a bit elusive, that's what stuck with me. Yeah. I know Jesus better because I know where he's from, and I know some of the places that he walked, and yeah. I walked those same places. The other is, of course, that the New Testament, especially the Gospels, certainly, they just light up at different times. I can see it. I don't think I'm a, a highly imaginative person where I can evoke an imagination of a particular place, but if I have been there, then I can see it. Um, and so now I can see Scripture, which is uh, it's just a, it's a great pleasure. And I hope to go back to refresh those yeah, memories. For sure. How do you think that going to Israel impacts the way that you offer biblical counseling? I mean, we're taking things a step further. That's, that's really what you do. Then, John, I'm tempted to ask you the same question. How does it affect your day-to-day life? Because that's really what you're identifying. How does knowing not just the history, but the geography, knowing experientially the geography and, and the locations, how does that affect our daily life? Again, I, I suspect it's not real tangible, but I have a bit more confidence that, that Jesus, the one we've heard, the one we've touched, as First John talks about, Jesus came in the flesh, and he was like us. He walked around. He, in my counseling, I want people to know that particular divine man who came to earth. So it's, it's elusive, but it's meaningful and and it's true. Yes. Hey, you're listening to The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger. Today we're joined by Dr. Ed Welch, one of the primary contributors to something I really want to share with you now. It's the New Life Counseling Bible. What exactly is the New Life Counseling Bible? Well, counseling sounds like a very professional word, but it's really taking Scripture and asking the question, what does this look like today in in my particular struggles, in, in, in my anger, my frustration with my kids? Uh, in in how I engage with my neighbor because I feel like I can't get a conversation going with my neighbor, in how I I love when I'm weary. You know, all you know, one question after another. What do I do with being overwhelmed and all these anxieties and stresses in life? Counseling essentially is is the question: How does Scripture speak to every nook and cranny in daily life? That's that's what we should be thinking. So don't think about some sort of counselor sitting across from you. Think about the Scripture. Think about the Spirit Himself as you mm-hmm. began the program. Think about the Spirit Himself as taking the truths of Scripture and then working them into the very details of life, which, which we would call wisdom. That's, mm-hmm. that's what we're thinking with this particular Bible version that we have. So with all the many other existing Bibles out there, you know I have to ask this. Why did you reached the point where you said, you know, we need this one. What was a tipping point for you? John, I don't think this is a horrible answer, but I don't think there ever was a tipping point. So is there a need for this particular Bible? Not necessarily, but, but there is a need in this particular difficult environment to continue with that question. How does Scripture speak to us now? When we see, especially post-COVID, how so many problems that we struggle with seem to be enhanced now. The statistics are so much higher of all kinds of human struggles. So in that sense, we don't need a Bible like this, but we do need the community of Christ constantly thinking, how does Scripture approach not only homosexuality and lesbianism, but how does it approach 
all the different variations of, of sexual desire these days, along with so many other things. So there is a need for that kind of thoughtfulness, no doubt. I was deeply impressed with the sample that I uh, was given. So many articles. That's, folks, as you're listening, you're saying, what, what, what is the New Life Counseling Bible? Lots and lots of great articles, sidebars, features, and all of them, all of them tied directly to Scripture that help us walk through some of these very complex uh, issues. But when we think about, you know, which issues to include, what kind of a grid did you use? I mean, there, you could have gone on forever with this. Uh, you're right. I think there are around 150 articles on there. Wow. And the important thing is, there are 150 articles are not written by me. I've written, I don't know, I don't even know, probably five or six or seven, maybe. And so in that sense, it's really nice. It doesn't represent the thought of one particular person. Here are dozens and scores of people who have really wrestled with particular topics and bring real wisdom because they've known people who have struggled with these things. And so you, you have access to a lot of people. And how do we choose those? We, what are the common problems that people are reckoned with? Yes. So, so you have something on one hand on bipolar, because 40 years ago, you wouldn't have a Bible that talked about bipolar, but there's this larger question. So many people struggle with psychiatric problems, and they don't seem to be identified in Scripture. So, so I do think there is a need for us to take the Scripture even into those particular places, along with what do I do with my kid when my kid is out of control? Yeah. And those are sort of the two extremes that we encounter in daily life. So you're really saying these extra resources, these articles, are not necessarily geared toward counselors so much as they are toward us, the end user. Is that fair? Yeah. Is counselors or pastors or just regular old people struggling in everyday life? We're sort of all in the same boat. We need Scripture to really speak to our own struggles. And it's out of that that we... We engage with other people who have similar yes. struggles. So that's just the way Scripture goes. It, it's, it's necessarily aimed for the professional because we all are needy mm -hmm. before Christ, and we all need help. So really that's, I think, the entrance into it. I want to know what God says to me about this particular problem. And then as we see Scripture speak in ways we didn't see, then all of a sudden it becomes a point of conversation with our neighbors, yes. uh, whether they're believers or not. Hey, here's what I was thinking about today. And I was actually thinking about the Bible, and here's this ancient text, and oh, yeah, yeah, it speaks to this particular struggle that I had today in ways that I never dreamed of. It creates an opportunity for those kinds of conversations. Our guest today has written many books and counseled thousands. He is Dr. Ed Welch of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Let's take a moment and look at one super, super common, and that's anxiety. So many people dealing with anxiety today. What does the New Life Counseling Bible bring to this today? Well, I think our tendency with anxiety is we want to immediately decrease the experience of it, because anxiety is a very visceral, very physical experience. What Scripture does, what everybody is looking for, but it's just on the tip of their tongue, in the midst of our anxiety, it's not so much strategies. Anxiety is saying, this world is too big, and I am too vulnerable, and I have less control and less power than I thought. What do I do? Uh, anxiety is looking for the right person. And we all know that. When we're anxious, we, we want somebody who can share in it with us, who, who we can confide in. Well, how can we point to the right person? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. That's you know, Psalm 56. That's the instinct. 
that we want. We have the opportunity of knowing the right person in the midst of our anxiety. So I think that would be the most prominent theme. The second theme in Scripture with anxiety, the world has picked this up, and it's, it's simply this. God says to us, you have all the grace that you need for today. And anxiety is usually living out in the future. And I'm thinking of two things here. I'm thinking of actually the, the prototype of this is manna in the wilderness. You have all the manna you need for today, and he will give you manna tomorrow for tomorrow. Well, when we get to the New Testament, it's manna. The word grace is taken over for manna. God has given us all the grace we need for today. So we think of what is he calling us to in this particular minute, in this particular hour? How do we serve him right now? What is his calling in our lives? And we will recognize that we have a Father in heaven, and he is the one who will worry about tomorrow, and he will give us new grace when we need it. Now, that's what I'm, what I'm doing, John, is I'm just giving a, a real rough overview of the simplicity and beauty and depth of what Scripture offers to us as anxious people. And then, of course, we have the rest of our lives to grow in, in the skills of both of those. Well, that is just the tip of the iceberg, and I love the fact that you're always taking us back to Scripture. These are not articles, uh, you know, with secular sort of principles. It's all Bible and uh, always taking us back to the author of Scripture. So we're excited for this uh, New Life Counseling Bible. Uh, We'll link you to it if you'll pay a visit to our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can also learn more about the ministry of Dr. Ed Welch. Our time is gone. Wish we had more, but we would love to have you come back and visit again. John, thanks. I I enjoy speaking about these things, and certainly I've enjoyed our conversation. All righty. Well, don't go away because Charlie Dyer returns with a fresh set of Bible questions and some very interesting answers. That's all coming up in our next segment here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for hanging out with us today at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, seated across from Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, former pastor, and a guy who loves answering questions, your questions about the Bible, about prophecy, about the Middle East. They're always welcome here. I'll share our email address in a moment. First, though, Israel has been on all of our minds for months now. We're struggling with questions of what to think and feel. And in the midst of all this, though, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. I'm so thankful that he is faithful to his chosen people. I am too, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for his precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah that they'd so desperately need. Now, if you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeandmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's dig into today's question, starting with Todd's. He says, do you see Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy? This is where God announces the hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yeah, and I do take Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy for actually two reasons. First, 
the passage has to be more than just a prediction that snakes and people won't get along. You know, snakes biting humans on the heel, inflicting pain, and humans stepping on the heads of snakes causing death. Now, if we only had the first three lines of the verse, then at least it could possibly be saying that. But that doesn't explain the addition of the somewhat cryptic prediction of the woman's seed bruising the snake on the head while the snake bruises only the heel of the human. Moses used the same Hebrew word for bruise in both of those phrases. So uh, it can be translated crush, suggesting some sort of conflict that's going to be harmful to the human but deadly to the serpent. But second, what seems to be an implicit prediction in Genesis 3.15 is made more explicit in the progress of Revelation. For example, Revelation 12.9 specifically connects the serpent to Satan. It says, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. And in drawing an application from Genesis 3.15 to believers, Paul connects the serpent directly to Satan. Uh, In Romans 16.20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So uh, as the Bible went on, it became clear that that passage in Genesis 3.15 was a reference to Satan. What do we mean by the seed of the serpent? Obviously, the seed of the woman is makes sense to us as humans. What kind of a seed does a serpent have, though, and how does that enter in? Uh, I think it's picturing Satan and what will follow him, not only the demonic oppression, but the uh, the effect that Satan will have ongoing. So he's just it's just drawing a parallel, but uh, the seed itself for the woman ultimately refers to Jesus. Yes. Question two from Mary. She says, it looks like Paul in Romans 9 is speaking exclusively about Israel. However, after describing God's power and mercy, it says, And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? And then Paul quotes Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who was unloved beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Now, was Hosea speaking exclusively of Israel in that passage? It looks like Paul is applying the verses to both Israel and to Gentiles. Yeah, well, in Romans 9 to 11, Paul's explaining the relationship between Israel and the church in God's program of salvation. And he takes a principle from Hosea and applies it to both the Jews and the church. Uh, In Hosea 1 and 2, Hosea had three children from his, his wife, Gomer. Each child was given a symbolic name. So Jezreel was the son. God will scatter the people. Lo Ruchama, a daughter, God will no longer show compassion to his people. And Lo Ami, a son, God is rejecting his people. And after picturing what seems to be the ultimate rejection on the northern kingdom for disobedience, God then reverses each name to show that this judgment was only temporary and it would be replaced with ultimate blessing. So from chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 1, each name takes on the opposite meaning. God will now plant Israel back in the land, demonstrate his love to them, and identify with them as his people. Now, in Romans, Paul takes the principle of God's mercy and applies it both to Jews and to the Gentiles. Hosea was actually written to the northern kingdom of Israel, but Paul applies Hosea's words to the Jews, which refers especially to the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he applies it to the Gentiles since they were not in a covenant relationship to God, as was Israel. So uh, I do see Paul using Hosea applicationally. Rather than trying to provide a new spiritual interpretation for those words, he's just applying the passage in a way that shows God has a special plan, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Linney asks, am I correct in thinking that all Arabs or Muslims are descendants from Ishmael, the son of Hagar and Abraham? Uh, Well, not everyone identified as an Arab today descended from Ishmael. 
though many did. Uh, The genealogy of Ishmael's sons is actually found in Genesis 25. He had 12 descendants, and uh, the tribes that they formed extend from the Sinai Peninsula over into the Arabian Peninsula and into the wilderness uh, east of Damascus, actually, almost to the Assyrian Empire, uh, as he gives the geographical range there. Uh, Though Egyptians today are considered Arab, they were actually descendants of Noah's son Ham. And so were the Cushites, uh, those south of Egypt, and the Canaanites. Uh, That's in Genesis 10. And as if that's not confusing enough, the genealogy of Esau also comes into play. He was a physical descendant of Isaac, though Genesis 36 says he dwelt in the hill country of Seir, uh, the region of uh, in Jordan where Petra is located. Now, putting all that together, the original Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula were descendants of Ishmael. Somewhere in the past, they must have intermarried with and probably absorbed the descendants of Esau and the Edomites. Now, following the Muslim conquest, the definition of Arab became confusing. So Egyptians are called Arab, though ethnically they weren't descendants of Ishmael. The same is true of those from Syria and Iraq. They were absorbed into the Arab Muslim culture, but that's not their history or their ethnicity. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. If you just joined us, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, welcomes your questions anytime via email at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Romans 3.20 says that no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now, how would you relate this to Adam and Eve's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did God want man to not understand what evil is? Well, the law to which Paul was referring in Romans 3 is the Mosaic law. So in this sense, his words don't apply specifically to Adam and Eve. In the garden, they received a blessing and a prohibition from God. The blessing, they could eat anything from all the trees with just one exception. And the prohibition was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God knew they would eat of it because we're told that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, God's plan of salvation, including the sacrificial death of his son for our sin, was put into place even before Adam and Eve were created. That doesn't excuse them for their disobedience, but it demonstrates God's gracious plan of redemption wasn't some afterthought. Now, I'm not sure we have an answer to the other part of your question, though. Perhaps God's ideal will was that humanity would come to understand good and evil by rejecting the evil, including the temptation of Satan, and instead choose the good, you know, eating from the tree of life rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we just don't know because that's not the choice they made. A question from Mary. How do you explain anti-Semitism? Some people say it's because Satan hates God, so he hates God's people. Others have pointed out what the Jewish religious leaders said at Christ's trial. His blood be on us and our children. Which reason is correct? Also, many Bible teachers, including dispensational Bible teachers, say that today the Jewish people are not God's chosen people, but will be in the future. Now, I got to say this as clearly as I can. Anti-Semitism at its core is satanic. In Revelation 12, John shares a vision of the conflict between Satan and heaven. And it first pictures Satan as a dragon waiting to kill Christ, who's pictured as a baby being born. Uh, Historically, Satan was behind Herod's plan to kill all the babies in Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth. And then Satan entered into the heart of Judas to betray Christ at the time of the crucifixion. Now, the vision goes on to show how God rescued his son through the resurrection and ascension into heaven. And it then pictures a still future war in heaven between Michael and Satan. When Satan loses his access to heaven, his next plan is to go after the woman in the vision who represents Israel. In essence, if Satan can't kill the king, he'll try to kill the Jewish people who are the king's subjects. And that's been true uh, throughout history. Now, in response to those who say the Jews are not God's chosen people, 
I think the answer, and we just mentioned it a question or so ago in Romans 9 to 11, individual Jews still need to accept Christ as Savior to get to heaven. Now, Jesus said that in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But in Romans 9 to 11, Paul makes it clear that God loves the Jewish people and that his plan for them will ultimately be fulfilled. Because as Paul says in Romans 11, God's gifts and his call, and that's the call of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Jewish people, are irrevocable. God doesn't renege on his promises. And that includes the promises he made to the Jewish people. And thankfully, it includes the promises he made to us as well. And I'm so thankful that God's a God who keeps his word. Well, he sure does. And that's a great reminder. Thank you, Charlie, for the answers to those questions. And again, you're welcome to submit your question anytime via email when you write us at the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. Got one more segment for you. It might just be our best. It's Charlie's devotional. It's next right here on The Land and the Book. So how do you feel about snow? A lot of people hate it. A lot of people hate it enough that they move away from any state where there's ever any snow. I happen to like it. I'm John Geiger. Charlie Dyer, our host, now he's moved away from it. But the thing is, I think a walk in the snow is one of God's greatest gifts. I'm rather intrigued though, Charlie, because uh, you talk about a weather bulletin in your devotional and it has something to do with snow? It does. The Bible has a prediction of snow and that's what we're going to look at from Psalm 148. All right, I can't wait to hear that. First, though, let's pause. Let's enjoy this thought from someone who's visited the Holy Land. Their life has changed, maybe the way they read Scripture. Let's listen to this testimony. Uh, Yeah, hi, this is Jim. Uh, I've been listening to your program. It's great. Uh, I went to Israel a couple years ago, and it was a life-changing experience. I loved it. Loved to go back. Haven't had the chance now that i got young children at home. As you can hear. But anyway, uh, uh, everyone that calls in about their experience always says that the Bible came alive. And certainly when you go to Israel, you, you really have a new perspective on reading the Word of God. The thing that was amazing to me was when they talk about how Jesus was in one place and then he was in some other place miles away. And the fact that they didn't have transportation and had to walk all around. Uh, gives you a new perspective when you when you read that and you go from city to city. So uh, I know you guys know this, but the Word of God is living and active and uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. Read the Word. Thanks. Well, Charlie, I know you're not a snow lover, but uh, I love you anyway, and I'll let you get at today's devotional. Yeah, John, that's one area we can agree to disagree. But growing up in northeastern Pennsylvania, I did enjoy snow. When it snowed, we would take our sleds to the street right in front of our house and slide down the hill. Now, I wouldn't recommend sledding on snow-covered streets today, but the volume of traffic on that street was light, and during a heavy snowstorm, it was even lighter. As I got older, the school parking lot replaced the hill for our snowtime activities. An icy, snow-covered, and totally empty parking lot was the best place to learn how to put a car into a skid and then practice regaining control. I think my years in northwest Indiana took away some of my joy of snow. Even with a snowblower clearing 30 inches of snow off the driveway with the temperature in the lower teens, well, that was just not my idea of fun. Snow was a lot more enjoyable as a kid. Over the course of my life, 
I've lived in places where I've experienced the impact of blizzards, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, hail, dust storms, and extended periods of intense cold and extreme heat. I learned to pay attention to weather reports because I didn't want to be caught out in the snow or in any other kind of bad weather for that matter. I still find myself listening to the news and going online to keep up with the latest weather bulletins to stay as prepared as possible for whatever may be coming my way. I admit it, I'm a weather junkie, but maybe that's why I find the references to weather in the Bible so fascinating. For the next four weeks, I want to focus on weather bulletins from the Bible, God's weather reports that ought to impact our lives. And since it's now January, it seems only appropriate that today's weather bulletin from the Bible focuses on snow. In Psalm 148.8, the psalmist calls on all things to praise the Lord, including lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. Snow doesn't occur that often in Israel, though it can snow in the higher elevations. The psalmist lumps snow together with other less frequent, though often feared, forces of nature like lightning, hail, and strong winds to remind us that we're to praise God for his mighty power. These natural forces literally do his word. That is, they accomplish what he tells them to do. The psalmist provides additional detail in Psalm 147, verses 15 and 16. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. Snow is a reminder of God's power and control over the cycles of heat and cold and of moisture and drought. It's a reminder that the forces of nature might be beyond our control, but they're never beyond his. They're another reason the psalmist calls on us to praise the Lord. But snow isn't only a reminder of God's power. The Bible also uses snow to picture cleansing from sin. So David could pray in Psalm 51 verse 7, following his sin with Bathsheba, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And God could graciously offer forgiveness to Israel in Isaiah 1.18 by saying, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If sin is pictured as a stain on our lives, God uses snow to picture his ability to remove the stain of sin and provide his cleansing and purity. Snow is also used by the writers of the Bible to illustrate something that is amazingly white. It's the heavenly white balance, if you will, the, the standard of brightness and whiteness against which everything can be measured. Daniel described God, whom he called the Ancient of Days, this way. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. In describing the angel who rolled away the stone at the tomb following Jesus' resurrection, Matthew wrote, His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And in Revelation 1.14, John pictured the glorified Jesus in much the same way. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. Snow was the highest standard of whiteness and purity the writers of the Bible could imagine. So it's natural for them to compare the dazzling glory of God, his son, and even heavenly angels by comparing them to snow. But there's one other weather bulletin about snow in the Bible that I find fascinating. And this one is so simple that we tend to forget about it. It's the fact that snow is wet and cold. The writer of Proverbs uses both to make a positive and a negative comparison to snow. He begins with the positive comparison. Like the coolness of snow at harvest time, 
is a trustworthy messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the spirit of his masters. Having someone you can count on to get the job done is as refreshing as a cool breeze on a hot day. It's like God opening his heavenly icebox and letting the cool air blow off the snow and down onto all the workers sweating under the hot sun at harvest time. Still having trouble with this comparison? Think of walking down a hot sidewalk on a blistering summer day and then going into a store where the air conditioning is pumping out cold, refreshing air. If that illustration pictures the cold of snow in a refreshing way, the negative comparison focuses on what could be the inappropriateness of snow. It's Proverbs 26.1. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, honor is not fitting for a fool. Snow and the cold that comes with it serve a purpose. But if you're heading to the beach in mid-July, that's not when you would want to experience a freak cold front accompanied by snow. Showing honor to someone who's a fool is just as inappropriate. Hopefully, most of you listening today aren't doing so while a blizzard is howling outside. But whether the ground where you now are is snow-covered or bare, pause to reflect on God's weather bulletin from the Bible about snow. Remember that the weather, including snow, is under God's ultimate control. And whether you're experiencing snow or hail or a thunderstorm or stormy winds that are rattling your windows and whistling past your doors, remind yourself that they are merely evidence of the power of an awesome God who loves you and who's there for us. And then think of the whiteness of snow the image it presents of purity and holiness, which that amazing God has made available to us through the death of his son on our behalf. And finally, remember that God has called on us to be his messengers, to share the good news about the forgiveness he offers to all through his son. You can refresh a sin-parched soul with that message. In the end, it doesn't matter what's happening outside, whether it's snowing and blustery or sunny and warm. God reminds us that he's in control, that he can provide cleansing from all your sin, and that he wants us to share that good news with others. So grab your sled or your sunglasses, put on your snowshoes or your sandals, slide your parka or your colorful Hawaiian shirt over your arms, and then head across the street to your neighbor's house to share the good news about Jesus. And if it happens to be snowing where you are, take along your snow shovel or snowblower to clear off their driveway be a real blessing to your neighbor in both word and deed. Boy, great ideas there, Charlie. I can't help but think there's a listener right now who has really connected with that Isaiah 118 verse. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. You know, our sins can be filthy right now, but because of what Jesus has done, we can be made white again, pure again. And if you are in that moment right now and you'd like some help, why not talk to a friend at 888-NEED-HIM. Someone will be glad to pray with you so you can receive the forgiveness of Jesus, the gift of eternal life at 888-NEED-HIM. Well, our time is gone. I want to say thanks to our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. The Land on the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.